Let's pray. Father, as we begin this study today, Lord, we are aware of, of the world around us and the things that we you know, just see. And we, we, um, you know, at times it can be perplexing. And Lord, our prayer this morning is for the hundreds of thousands and millions of people right now who are being affected by this storm. Lord, how it's lasted and just the devastation. And um, Lord, our prayer is that you would bring your protection, that you would bring your provision, that you would in this time be using this to bring people to you. And Lord, we want to we see that, that there is a quick restoration. Lord, we also, I think we all want to know how we can best partner and, and how we can be there for those uh, who are in, in such need right now. So Lord, as we go forward, we pray for great wisdom and discernment and all. And, all. and then Father, um, just again, to see your, your will and your work be done in this. Lord, I also pray for this Bible study today. As we look at the world around us, I pray, God, that you would give me the words to say in the right way. We realize that it's your word and your spirit coming together to open our eyes, and I pray that today you would open our eyes as we travel through. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Hey, I don't know if you saw on Facebook, but uh, we partner with NAM, which is the North American Missions Board of the Southern Baptists, and so we send money to them to go into places like this because they, they're very good at doing what they do. So uh, on Facebook it said anything that you designate the next two weeks towards missions is going to go towards uh, the, the hurricane recovery. So just letting, letting you know that. Well, Matt, uh, Luke 24. Luke, by the way, how's everybody doing today? I mean, not like you're going to say terrible, but I just feel undone if I don't say that. So... Luke chapter 24. Now, uh, we have been working our way through the gospel of Matthew. We find ourselves in the home stretch, literally the last chapter. If you're new to Calvary, one of the things that we do is we'll take a book of the Bible, we'll begin studying from the very beginning all the way to the very end, and we've come to the very last chapter of the gospel of Matthew. Now, we, we've talked about um, the Jesus's, uh, the last supper, the arrest, we talked about the trials, we talked about going to the cross, and we left that off there last week. But one of the things that we find is that, that Matthew, in his writing of the gospel, focuses more on the teachings of Jesus. So sometimes you come to some of the events, and the other gospel writers will focus in on the events. So because for the readers of Matthew's gospel there in the first century, Matthew is writing to Jewish believers. So some things were just a given to them. So he didn't feel the need to elaborate because they already, all, they already knew that. So when it comes to the resurrection, he gives a couple of verses and just kind of moves on. And so I thought that we would go to say Luke's gospel. Luke has written to more people like us who would not come from a first century Jewish background. And he's going to give a few more details. So what we're going to do is I'm going to take this from Luke's gospel this week. We will borrow from Matthew as we need to as we travel through. And uh, then next week we will wrap up the, the Gospel of Matthew back in chapter 28. So as we talk about the resurrection this week, last week we left off with Jesus being on the cross. We know from the story that he's taken, placed into a tomb. We'll talk about that in a few moments. But as we talk about the resurrection there on your outline, Paul the Apostle would say this, for I delivered to you as of first importance, I've underlined that part, 
what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Scriptures all laid out in the Old Testament, we would say. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Again, it was all laid out in the Old Testament. The gospel must include the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. If you don't have the resurrection of Jesus, you don't really have the gospel. Everything will hinge on the resurrection. So there on your outline, Paul would say it like this. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith also is vain. So the idea there is that if Jesus is not really raised from the dead bodily, um, then, then he's really no better than any other religious leader. You can go, you know, like, like Buddha or Muhammad, who you know, all said some things, but you can go to their grave. So, so everything hinges on the fact that Jesus is raised from the dead. When I came to understand and believe the resurrection, I grew up in the church, so I accepted it, but there came a time where I really wrestled with it, and when I came to understand, it was either true or it wasn't, but when I came to the place where I believed that it was true, it changed everything for me in my spiritual life. So a couple of things. We left off with Jesus being crucified last week. Again, Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy man, puts takes the body of Jesus, gets permission from Pilate, the Roman governor, places Jesus into his tomb. And uh, in those days, a tomb would be carved out in the side of a hill. It would be a complete rock uh, opening that it would be carved out. And there would be no back door. But then there would be this large circular disc type stone that would weigh somewhere between 2,000 and 4,000 pounds. There would be a groove cut in front of the door. And so you'd roll that stone inside of the groove. And once it went inside the groove, two to 4,000 pounds, it didn't come out very easily. That's going to be important for our study. It would take many people to get that out. You recall from our previous studies that when Jesus is arrested, the disciples are terrified. They run for their lives. At the crucifixion, only John will show up. Everybody else is scattered. They realize that they might be next on the Romans list, so they're running for their lives. And from their perspective, the ministry of Jesus has not turned out the way that they expected from the way that they had always hoped. Now, so Jesus is placed in the tomb, and it's at that point where the religious leaders become concerned that the disciples of Jesus might come and they might steal the body of Jesus. So in Matthew's gospel, and I put it there on your outline, they come before Pilate, who's the Roman governor, and they say, therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he's risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go make it as secure as you know how. The idea is you got it, you know, good luck with that. A Roman guard is somewhere, uh, minimally is 16 soldiers, 16 Roman soldiers. Uh, The Romans were the most disciplined, most trained military that the world had ever known at that point. They would be the most armed. They would have spears, they'd have swords, they'd have knives, they'd they'd have shields. And they had in the Roman military a rule that if you were to guard something and you lost that, then you would have to pay for that with your life. So there was the death penalty. So militarily speaking, and for those of you who've ever been in the military, you know that you just don't fall asleep on guard duty, especially if you've been told that somebody might be trying to come and steal what it is that you're guarding. So they've been told that 
the disciples of Jesus might decide to come steal the body. So the Romans are definitely not going to be asleep at this point. Now, when the Romans guarded, they had perfected what is called the, the turtle shell defense. So if you've ever seen pictures of, of guards guarding the tomb, typically what you see is that the tomb is one place and the guards are off a couple of hundred feet and they're kind of guarding from a distance. That's not how they would guard. If the Roman guard was only 16 soldiers, they would be four guards in four rows. And the reason they would have four guards in four rows is so that if they were attacked, they would take their shields and they would create a turtle kind of back, which is why it was called the turtle defense. They would have their spears and their spears would go out forward so that if anybody charged them, they would be impaled. And so that would guard against arrows and things like that. And then if worse came to worse, they'd pull out their swords and they'd be able to, to uh, defend. So they, would not, um, they wouldn't go to sleep and they're equipped in order to handle whatever you know, would come their way. So the guard is there. They're stationed at the door of the, of, the, of the grave. The stone is in place. Sunday morning comes and Matthew tells us, and I put this there in your outline, Behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. Now just very quickly, the angel doesn't come because the earthquake happens. It appears that the earthquake happens because the angel comes and rolls away the stone. So those two events are tied. It says he rolled away the stone and he sat upon it. And I'll talk about that in a moment. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow and the guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. So I've always pictured this where the angel comes down like lightning, rolls away the stone, sits on it. I've always pictured in my mind that he sits down, looks at the guards and says, hi there. We don't know that that happened. As a matter of fact, in all four of the Gospels, it's not recorded that the angel ever speaks to the guards. And so we, we don't know. But that's just my rendition, and I, and I do like that. It says he sits on the stone. Do you guys see that stone? For an angel to sit on that stone, he's going to have to be about 15 feet tall or so. So at least, at least that. So uh, this, this angel that appears here that does this um, is going to be massive and uh, is going to terrify the guards. It's also important to know uh, in all four Gospels, the angel rolls away the stone, not so Jesus can get out, but so that we can see in. Because in all four Gospels, when they roll away the stone, Jesus does not come walking out. The stone is rolled away so that they can see He's not there. He's already left the tomb. It's going to be important for our story because they're going to see the angel, they're going to look in the tomb, and they're going to recognize Jesus isn't there. So they're terrified. They're they're terrified. So it's at this point that they split. And where do they go? Well, Matthew tells us there in your outline, some of the guard. Now, it's important when it says some of the guard to realize that there is a much larger contingent of this guard. Some of them go, and they're going to go to see the, the, the high priest, the chief priest, came to the city and reported to the chief priest all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. And we're going to suggest it's probably a lot more than 30 pieces this time of silver. And said, you are to say, his disciples came by night 
and stole him away while we were asleep. And uh, they want them to change the story. The guards are going to come. They're going to say, here's what happened, but they're going to be paid to say something very, very different. His disciples came by night, stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, that would be Pilate the governor, we will win him over and we will keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they'd been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews as it is to this day. So here you have these guards who are under the penalty of death for losing the one that they are to guard, and they realize that now they're in trouble because he's not there. So they run to the religious leaders. They need some help. And so here's the story that's concocted. Uh, Jesus is dead in the tomb. Everybody agrees with that. His disciples are unarmed, and they're afraid. They're terrified. They've scattered. They were so afraid they wouldn't even come to the crucifixion. There's a 2,000-pound disc in front of the tomb. The Romans are heavily armed. They're very well-disciplined. They're well-trained. And the Romans have been warned about a possible body heist. So so they're going to be more on the alert. And they know that if they lose the body, that they are going to have to pay for that with their own lives. They are concerned about the followers of Jesus coming and taking the body. And at this time in Jerusalem, there are tens of thousands of those who would be followers of Jesus who would be there. So there's a real concern. So knowing that, somehow, some way, they're going to find themselves fast asleep. The disciples who've been afraid and unarmed, who've deserted Jesus and now believe that it's not going to happen the way that they'd always hoped, uh, somehow, some way, now they decide to muster up the courage and then to go and steal the body. So they go to the tomb and they find the, 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 uh, the, the, the rock closing in or closing the, the tomb and they see all the Roman soldiers supposedly there in their uh, four by four, uh, four, four rows of four at least, uh, guarding the tomb. And all the soldiers are fast asleep. So the disciples decide to sneak in, tiptoeing over the Roman soldiers. That would be right there. Nobody wakes up. They get up. There's this stone that's somewhere between 2,000 and 4,000 pounds. They get under it and they push it away without grunting because that might wake somebody up. And fortunately, the stone is very silent as they move it. They then go into the tomb, pick up the dead body of Jesus, leaving the grave clothes there there for some reason, and carry the dead body of Jesus tiptoeing over the Roman guards as they step out. Nobody ever wakes up, even though they're under the penalty of death. Well, I think it takes a lot of faith to believe that story, especially if you've ever been in the military. But what really did that and not only do they take the body, but they take the body to an undisclosed place. And the Romans, with all of their ability to get confessions out of people through torture, crucifixion, whatever, they can never produce a body. But what really got to me when I began to wrestle with the resurrection was that uh, I studied how the apostles died. They died saying, we saw him alive. And one of the things that we know, human nature is simply this. We absolutely will not die for something that deep down we know is not true. So when Peter was about to be crucified upside down, all he had to say was, it didn't happen. 
they would have stopped that crucifixion, paid him a lot of money, and put him on the speaking circuit so he could go around putting an end to this crazy rumor that Jesus had been raised from the dead. People will not die for something that they know is not true. And I came, as I studied that, to believe that that Jesus really was raised from the dead. And when I came to that place, everything in my spiritual life changed. Because if that was true, then I could believe everything else that, that, he, that he taught. And so for me, that was the turning point. Well, uh, as we pick up Luke 24 today, we'll pick it up in verse 1. And it says, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. This would be a number of the, the women who are coming to the tomb. And uh, they're bringing spices because they're expecting to find a dead body not a resurrected Jesus. Not only that, they have a concern. Mark tells us in Mark chapter 16, it says, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Again, that stone is somewhere between 2,000 and 4,000 pounds. They can't do that. So they're going to need some help and they have no idea where that help's going to come from. Verse 2, it says, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And they were perplexed about this. And behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here, but he has risen. And then I love the word remember. I've underlined that. How he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Verse 8, and then they remembered his words. Then they remembered his word. They, they had heard his words, all of them had heard his words. And, and even though they had heard his words, they, they never came to the place where they took it very seriously. Okay, you know, Jesus is talking here. Maybe what he's saying is allegorical, maybe it's spiritual, maybe it's mystical. But they didn't take his words and what he said had to take place seriously enough. So the angel has to say, remember. Well, verse 9, it says, and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, there were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, also the other women with them, we're telling these things to the apostles. You know, in the Gospels, it's very interesting to me that in all four Gospels, before Jesus reveals himself to the apostles, he always reveals himself to the women first. The women will be the ones who see Jesus before it's revealed to them. And so the question is, why does he reveal himself to the women? Well, there's a couple of theories. One theory I don't ascribe to, but some people hold that if you really want the news to get out, <laughs> why? I'm not. I said I didn't ascribe to it. It's a theory. Verse 11. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them as they relate that to the apostles. God will use the women to reveal himself and reveal the truth of the resurrection to the women. Now the reason being, in that society, 
women were regarded as just slightly above property. A woman could not give a testimony in court because their, their testimony was considered not to be reliable. So Jesus is always confronting the things that bugs him about society. So he knows society feels that way. Jesus doesn't feel that way. He says, I'm going to reveal myself to the women first, is the idea. Verse 12, but Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen wrappings only. And he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. If you read John's gospel, John will say it was John and Peter who ran to the tomb. So verse 13, Now, everything that we've looked at here has happened early in the morning. Jesus is going to appear to a number of people throughout the day and into the evening. Luke is going to skip to the end of the day, and he's going to pick up the narrative. So in verse 13, it says, And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. So let me, let me just uh, share a little perspective here. As we've been studying the, the geography of Israel, you see the bottom part of Israel is an area called Judea. And there in Judea, everything centers around Jerusalem. We see Jerusalem. And you'll recall that we highlighted that just under Jerusalem, four to six miles is this area called Bethlehem. But if you go about seven miles north of Jerusalem, there's this village called Emmaus. Does everybody see that? So keep in mind that this is about seven miles away from Jerusalem. Here are two who are walking. This is not going to be a 15-minute walk. This is going to be a couple hours of them, of them walking. So verse 13, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they were talking with each other about these things, which, which had taken place, While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still. In my translation, it says they were looking sad. So you want to underline that. They're looking sad. Some of your translations will have Jesus saying, why are you so sad? Either way, you want to to underline that. Now, um, so why are you looking so so sad? Verse 18, it says, and one of them named Cleopas, some of your Bibles might say Clopas or Cleopas, or it might be spelled a little bit differently, answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? So before we go any further, I want to just highlight, you have this Cleopas, and uh, there on your outline, few days before Jesus has been crucified. And it said, now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister. That would be aunt. And her name is Mary, uh, the wife of Cleophas. Uh, so, uh, and Mary Magdalene. So you have here, you have his mother, sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas. And many people would hold that this Mary would also be Aunt Mary. Mary was such a common name in, in that day, and her husband's name would be Cleopas. So many hold that this is Aunt Mary and Uncle Cleopas here that Jesus is speaking to. And so keep that in mind. So verse 18, one of them, one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, 
Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? Now, if you're here today and you don't believe that Jesus has a sense of humor, just read the next verse. And he said to them, what things? You want to underline that? What things? Something happened here? I mean, I've been gone for a couple of days. What could it possibly be? And they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, and I've underlined prophet, mighty indeed, and word in the sight of God, and all the people. You know, <laughs> I love that. Uh, what that tells us is when Jesus says, what things? Jesus already knows what things. But he wants them to tell him about it. And what that tells us is that Jesus, who already knows about the stuff going on in our life, wants us to talk to him about it, even though he already knows. He loves to hear us talk about it. Well, verse 19, and he said to them, what, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word and sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping, I've underlined hoping, that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all of this, it's the third day since all of these things happened. We say, we know he was a prophet. We know he was a prophet. And we were hoping that he was going to be the one. But it's not turned out the way that we had hoped that it would. We were hoping. It's not turned out the way that we were expecting. Verse 22 it goes on and it says, but they continue the story, but also some of the women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. And they came saying that he had, that he had also seen a vision, that, that they had also seen a vision of angels and said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also said, but him they did not see. So here as they describe it. They're saying, we, we don't know what to make of this. It, it didn't happen the way that we thought it was going to happen, and, and now we just don't know what to do with the story that we're being told. Verse 25, he said to them, O foolish men, or O foolish ones, and slow of heart, underline, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory. The people of that day were very much like the people of this day. Uh, these were godly people. They loved the Lord. They would say that they were Bible-believing. But they had believed in certain passages, but they were selective over the passages. So when it came to the passages of Christ who was coming, the Messiah they had certain passages that they highlighted, but they allegorized, they uh, taught that some of those other passages, you know, you can't take those too seriously, they're spiritual, they're metaphorical, and because of that, because they didn't look closely enough at what the Bible said, they now find themselves sad, depressed, not knowing what in the world is going on. So verse 27, it says, then beginning with Moses, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, and with all, I've underlined all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. 
they had heard some of the scriptures. But they never looked at them very close. They didn't take them very serious. And because of that, because they didn't look close enough, now as things are unfolding, they're sad, they're perplexed, and and they don't know what to make of it. So some of the passages that we've looked at over the last couple of weeks, they knew, but they didn't look at close enough. So for instance, you'll recall we mentioned how 500 years B.C., Zechariah the prophet, Jesus said all the prophets, which would be the, the, the major ones, the minor ones, and it says, in, in Zechariah it says, so they weighed out 30 shekels of silver, 30 pieces of silver, as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter and the house of the Lord. And we talked about how Jesus would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. And ultimately that would go to buy the potter's field. But, but Judas threw it down in the house of the Lord. And that was all concerning how he would be betrayed. But they saw Judas betray Jesus and they said, how could he be so wicked? How could he think like, why would he do such a thing? But what they forgot to say is, hey, that's happening just like the Bible said. Another place, Isaiah, 800 years before Jesus was born, we wrote this verse out last week and it talked about the crucifixion and it said, but he was pierced through for our transgression. This was written hundreds of years before crucifixion was even, even invented. And they saw Jesus being pierced, crucified. And they said, how dare they do this to such a good man? Have we really come to this place where people would do that to an innocent man? Instead of saying, you know, it's happening just as the Bible said, exactly as the Bible said. Well, another place, a thousand years before Jesus was born, and in Psalm 22, and Psalm 22, as we mentioned last week, is a picture of somebody who's hanging on the cross, looking down around him and describing what he sees. And a thousand years before he was born, he said, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And they said, how tragic. How could you do something like that to somebody? It's already bad enough. Why would you do that? Instead of saying, you know, that's, that's exactly what the Bible says. It's happening exactly as the Bible said. So here you have Aunt Mary and Uncle Cleophas, godly people, but sadly, like many people, they didn't take what the Bible said seriously enough. And so even though it was happening just as the Bible said, we find that there's a sadness, there's a perplexity. We don't know what's going on because they didn't take it seriously enough. It's like in our world where we see the things that are going on around us, things that we saw in the Atlantic Ocean this past week. And uh, even though we went through Matthew and Matthew and Matthew 24, Jesus says, these things must take place. And he lists a number of things that would take place once Israel became a nation and how there would be an acceleration of these things. But we live in a generation that doesn't look seriously enough at what he said and how he said it would happen. And so for many of us, like Aunt Mary and Uncle Cleophas, we look on and we say, how, how could this be? Why is this happening? Well, we forget to say it's happening just as the Bible says. 
I love there in your outline, Jesus taught in John 5, he says, you search the scriptures because they believe in me, but they believe they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. They needed to look just a little bit closer. So these guys are sad, they're confused about the things that are going on, but the things that they see taking place around them. And so Jesus steps into their situation and his solution there in your outline, you want to write this down, Jesus' solution to their depression will be to give a Bible study. You want to write that down. Their depression was based upon what they saw going around them because they didn't look close enough at what it is that Jesus had taught. So he says he begins with all the prophets. That would be the major prophets, the minor prophets. And what we're going to find is that by the time we're through with his Bible study, there's going to be a burning in their heart. What they needed was for somebody to explain it to them. By the way, very quickly write down his focus of this Bible study is going to be prophecy, prophecies. He's going to go through all the prophecies concerning him and what had to take place. You and I live in a church age where it's very common for people in the church world to say, don't focus in on the prophecies. You know, just they're allegorical, mystical, you can't understand. But Jesus believes that that's the answer to their sadness. So he's going to give them a prophecy lesson. Well, they're walking seven miles, and in verse 28 it says, and as they approached the village where they were going, I love this, he acted as though he were going further. See you guys. Verse 29. But they urged him saying, stay with us for it is getting toward evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. Verse 30, and when he had reclined at the table with them, underline, he took the bread and blessed it and breaking it, he began giving it to them. You and I would miss this, but in the Middle Eastern culture, if you're invited to go to somebody's house, you go in and you're the guest. And so as the guest, the host would then say the blessing, the host would break the bread, the host would would give out the food. But what we notice here, Jesus is invited in, and when Jesus is invited in, he becomes the host. And you want to write that down. He becomes the host. Verse 31, it says, and then their eyes were open as he began giving it to them, and then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Many people believe that as he hands the bread out, they see the scars in his hands. Now, the reason I can't be Jesus is because if I were handing out the bread and as soon as they recognized me before I disappeared, I'd go, ha, like that. And, and which is why they don't let me do that. So, Uh, Verse 32. Now verse 32 is my favorite verse, and I hope it's yours too. That they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? That's my favorite verse because I've had that experience. I grew up in the church, wonderful church experience, been all over the church block. But after Bible college, after seminary, after being in the ministry, I walked into a church that opened up the Bible and said, we're going to read through. And they explained it, notice this, see this. And we just went through and it was explained to me. I'd read the Bible my whole life and I saw things I'd never seen before. And it was always right there. 
And at the end of that, there was what they describe as a burning inside of them. And I had that same experience. And I hope that as you come to Calvary and as you go through the Bible and you see it has that same effect in your life. So, and that, that's why we do what we do. Well, verse 33, he says, and they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found, and found gathered together the 11 and those who were with them saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. That would be Peter. And they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. Well, verse 36, they were telling, while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do you, why do you doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet, that is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and they saw the scars. By the way, you want to write this down, the only man-made thing in heaven will be his scars. That's the only man-made thing that makes it to heaven. Verse 41. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement. I love it. They don't know what to make of it. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? Can a Messiah get a meal around here? Anything? It's been three days for crying out loud. Starving here. So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Now that's so that they would know he's not a spirit, he's not a ghost. Ghosts don't eat. So he, he actually eats that. Uh, also, Jesus is not a vegetarian, even in heaven. So, Amen. Thank you, brother. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that, in, that all the things which were written about me in the law and Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, he adds that here, must be fulfilled. Psalm 22, you know, uh, they divide my garments. My God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? All of that there in the Psalms. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. In our story today, we're going to stop right there, but in our story today, there's three groups of people who love Jesus. They love the word, but they didn't look closely enough at the word. They didn't take it serious so that when things began to happen because they didn't look seriously enough, they were perplexed. So you have the women going to the, to the tomb and the angel says, remember, you have Uncle Cleopas and Aunt Mary and how he has to explain the scriptures to them. And that begins to do something in their heart. And then you have the apostles there at the last, at the last part of the chapter. And Jesus says, give me a piece of fish. You know, he has to explain that to you. It all had to happen just as the Bible says. That's important for you and I because you and I live in a generation where the Bible speaks more about the generation that you and I live in than the generation that saw Jesus appear on the earth the first time. Uh, and it all began when this nation of Israel became a nation again after 2,000 years, the only nation on the planet that existed outside of its homeland for 2,000 years and one day becomes a nation again. And Jesus taught that that would begin what you and I would call the last of the last days. And we talked about that. They didn't take it seriously enough. So when these things happened, they were perplexed, they were sad. And, and sadly because they didn't look closely enough, they weren't saying, hey, it's happening just 
like the Bible said. My hope for you, my hope for us, is that as we see these things take place, our response isn't to be frantic or frustrated or rallying or fighting, but to look on and say, you know, it's happening just as the Bible said. And so we prepare and we respond appropriately. Now, next week, we are going to close out Matthew. The disciples see that Jesus is about to ascend to heaven. For the past three years, they've been walking with him. They've been following him. He says, I'm going. And so their question to Jesus is, if you go, now what? Now what do we do? He's going to answer that question next week. Did you find that interesting today? Good. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word, and thank you so much for this congregation that hungers for you and the things of your word. Lord, I pray that you would always, as the scripture is explained, to create that, as you said, that burning in our hearts as things are unfolded. We want to be those who respond rightly in this time as we see things happening just like you said they would happen. And Lord, in that, as we respond appropriately, we pray that you would use us to be lights shining in what can be a very dark place. Make us effective in this time. Father, I pray that you keep each and every one of us until we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.